Friday, April 8th here in DraftShark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to another episode of Best Ball Friday. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. And we spent a lot of time talking on these shows about Underdog, which has become the most prominent best ball spot at this point. But one place that I've actually enjoyed playing more over the past couple of years is Drafters. So we're going to be shifting the focus there today. And here to help me do that is Ben Hover. You can find him on Twitter at Ben Hover, H-A-U-V-E-R. His website is thedfsdose.com. And if you're a regular on Drafters, you might recognize him as the champ of last year's regular season mm-hmm. tournament on there. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, appreciate the invite. Happy to talk some best ball, chop it up, talk Drafters, all that good stuff. Yeah, it was fun to find you and then realize that you actually live in the greater Rochester area just like me. It's funny when you have to go to Twitter and through somebody else who lives far away find out there's this another there's another fantasy guy who lives like 20 minutes away from you. I know it's crazy, right? Like, you know, you sent me the invite to hop on the podcast. I'm like, all right, cool. And then I, I go over to your you know page. I'm looking around. I'm like, Rochester, New York. Oh, oh, okay. All right. We're, we're, you know, we're brothers in area. So uh, that's what's up, you know? <laughs> right. That's kind of the way I found draft sharks initially. I was here for a while and I was like, wait a second, you guys are like right next door to me. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> So anyone who sees the pinned tweet at the top of your Twitter page can Mm -hmm. see that you probably had quite the sweat in week 17 of last year. Twelve hundredths of a point was the difference between the win in that drafters tournament I mentioned a couple minutes ago and cutting your take in half by finishing in second place. So, Ben, walk us through how that final week played out for you. All right. I mean, so pressure was on, right? And. You know, I spend most of the actual NFL season focused on DFS. You know, I'm not really looking at my best ball teams until about, you know, week 15, 16, you know, really checking it out at the end because I'm just so invested in, you know, DFS during the season. So, you know, I tune in around maybe three or four weeks till the end of the season, see where I'm at. And, you know, I'm in the top 10, so that feels good. And then, you know, things just started really breaking right. And I was climbing up the ranks. And by the time we get to week 17, I am in second place. You know, I've been flipping back and forth with uh, a guy who goes by the name of do me favors him. And I started DMing all week, like, Oh man, this is going to be really close. Our teams are really similar. So there's only a couple players out of, you know, the 20 team roster that are going to be differentiators. So, you know, Justin Herbert has a big game. We both have and Mark Andrews has a big game. We both have them. That's not really going to move the needle one way or the other. It's sort of the ancillary guys. And, you know, it, it looked like it, it could really go either way all week. And, Things just broke really right for me, man. You know, Devin Singletary comes in, has his first 20-plus point game of the season, really kicks off his breakout towards the end of the season at that point in Week 17 when I need it. You know, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire gets hurt in Week 17. I have Darrell Williams as my RB5 guy that I took at the end of the draft. You know, he comes in, drops 25.7 in the absolute most clutch moment. Uh, Mark Andrews, who was on an absolute tear at the end of last season, as I'm sure you remember, you know, he put up 28, 35, 26 over weeks 14 through 16. Then he comes in, drops only 14 points in that final week 17. We both have him. And then my tight end two, Noah Fant comes in and has his second game all year with over 20 points. So that's a huge differentiator right there. And just everything really broke right at the right time. It was a super intense sweat going into Monday night football, which was the last game of that slate 
you know, we were set. I had zero, I was up by yeah, 0.12 points, literally two yards over the course of a full 17 game season and total points, just a crazy close uh, game. He had David and Joku left in that, uh, that Sunday night game. And, you know, and Joku wasn't able to pull it out. It was just, just a crazy sweat. It was probably the first time ever, at least since what, three years ago that anybody was watching David and Joku and like, God, I hope this guy doesn't go off tonight. I was, I was. And, and, you know, I usually don't watch uh, games like out at, at bars or, or anything like that, but I had to, I was just, you know, I was so nervous. I was out there and just every catch and, you know, when Joku got like two catches in the fourth quarter, I'm like, this dude scores a touchdown right now. I'm not making it out of this bar, but <laughs> you know, we held on. Daryl Williams and Devin Singletary are interesting names in that mix. Are, are they, mm-hmm. so, I mean, you know, on one hand, obviously they, they show you the kind of differentiator that you can get late in the draft. And obviously you're, you're spreading around exposures at that point. You can't say this is the one guy that's going to be the difference maker, but being that those were two later round running backs, are you generally building, looking to get those later running backs? I guess how in general, whether it was just last year or year over year, do you target running backs? I mean, running backs like that, I think are like imperative to the success of, of being a winner in, in these large field tournaments, because, you know, that's a mistake I think a lot of people make is not understanding how much you have to prioritize upside. And so, you know, JD McKissick, look like a player like that is going to probably outscore, you know, Tony Pollard, Alexander Madison, all these sorts of guys, you know, Singletary, Daryl Williams, like on the season, but he's not going to have those opportunities where the guy in front of him gets hurt and he's going to have monster games for you. So, you know, I was just like looking at Daryl Williams and yeah, he had a ton of games where he wasn't usable, but he had three games with 20 plus. So just that level of upside is not going to be there with some of the guys who definitely are going to finish with more total points than him, but you definitely need to capitalize on those spike weeks and running back is definitely the position to do it because there's just such a higher injury risk over the course of the year. And then some of these guys also have standalone value. Like Tony Pollard didn't have, you know, any real monster stretches where Zeke missed significant time and he came in and was the workhorse, but you know, his, his role in the passing game still gave him value in a full PPR format like drafters, which going back to your point is just one of the other things that I think is really important with drafters versus underdog is that full PPR versus half PPR makes a huge difference. Yeah, I've seen recency bias. We see recency bias on players all the time, but I've seen I've noticed it this year on that handcuff running back prototype where last year we were coming off Mike Davis, you know, stepping in and being a reasonable facsimile of Christian McCaffrey. Obviously not McCaffrey, but a guy who played like an RB1, produced like an RB1 with McCaffrey out. So people were elevating Tony Pollard. They were elevating Alexander Madison this year. We don't really have so much of that kind of guy to look back on last year that was really a league winner from that handcuff spot. I've been noticing Alexander Madison going a lot later. Tony Pollard even going a little bit later. I think he still kind of gets lost in the range where like Miles Sanders, Kareem Hunt are going. But Madison steps out to me for the reason that you said. Most of the year he's going to give you nothing. But if Dalvin Cook goes down, then you've got a potential RB1, which I, I talked about with Hayden Winks on on the, the episode of this that he guessed it on. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's like a a clear example to me. So, I mean, just looking at drafters ADP right now, like, you know, guys like Tony Pollard and Alexander Madison are going around, you know, like Raheem Mostert. Okay. Yeah. Mostert is probably going to have more touches than Alexander Madison. What, you know, 75% of the weeks this season, 80% of the weeks this season. But if Chase Edmonds goes down, is his role changing? Probably not. It's probably shifting to like Miles Gaskin 
or something like that. But if Dalvin Cook goes down, Alexander Madison is an absolute smash. And those, you know, two or three 20 plus point weeks are going to make a bigger impact than, you know, a handful of 11 or 12 point weeks that Mostert is going to give you throughout the course of the year. Yeah, and to me, it's been even easier to target a player such as Madison when you can start the draft getting running backs at pretty good values and you get, you know, two to three starters. And then later on, it's like, well, do I want Raheem Mostert who might have a couple of good weeks or do I want Alexander Madison who could smash if Dalvin Cook goes down, as you're saying, Um, besides those later running backs, what else, you know, obviously it's key to, to get the breakthrough guys, Mark Andrews who have big seasons that year, you're going to find a lot of that type of player, but what else specifically worked for your roster uh, that made it the champion last year? I mean, you definitely hit that that first point. Like you, you have to hit on the guys who have monster years. So Mark Andrews was on, you know, almost all, if not all of the top 10 teams, same thing with Justin Herbert. Like these were guys you needed to have. I mean, I think I was like the only person who didn't have Cooper cup, which is kind of astounding to win a total points format this year without Cooper cup, especially um, full PPR. Yeah, I know it was, I, I couldn't even believe I was in the top 10 when I looked at this team, but you know, I had Jonathan Taylor. That was another one that everybody had you know, towards the top end of this tournament. So you definitely need those guys. But, you know, looking through this roster, it was definitely a mix of sort of like we talked about with guys just coming on at the right times um, when other running backs were injured. So like DeAndre Swift was a guy who was on a lot of these teams despite being injured because he had such a big first half of the year. But a lot of those teams fell off later because they didn't have the replacement value. So, you know, the timing is a huge factor where, okay, so I lose Swift. A lot of these people lose Swift, but I've got Singletary and you know daryl williams coming on at the right time i would say one player that made a huge impact was cordero patterson who i had as my final round pick 20th round pick and he was slated as a wide receiver despite being a you know a running back so you're getting a little bit of a positional advantage there where you're basically getting the starting running back of a team you know as your wide receiver 10 he was my wide receiver 10 on this and you know obviously he slowed down towards the end of the year but he had monster weeks throughout the year you know 23.9 week 2 24.6 week 4 27 in the middle of the season as well and Cordero Patterson was a guy who was not 100% owned he was not being drafted a lot of people didn't really expect him to carry over and sort of have that role as a starting running back for the Falcons so you know you think about it like correlating to DFS low ownership guy. I'm the only one, you know, getting these points and to not only have Cordero Patterson, I had one share of Cordero Patterson across hundreds of teams on drafters. And I just so happened to have that one share of CPAT on a Jonathan Taylor team, you know, on a Herbert Andrews team. And, you know, that was obviously beneficial, but um, you know, that that's, you're not going to find that situation too often. I don't think in best ball because most players are going to be a hundred percent owned. You know, it's not like DFS where, okay, there's a 1% owned guy. Like everybody's drafting the same pool of players. So you're not going to find that often. And I did find that in this spot and it, it paid off for sure. Yeah. Patterson though, is a great example. I, you know, we're never, we're probably never going to see this exact blueprint where it's your 10th receiver and he turns into some team's number one running back, but yeah. he's a good example of seeing a path. And it's not a matter of saying this guy is definitely going to hit. Uh, it's more looking at that Atlanta team last year. And for me, it was like, Mike Davis is really not as good as where he's being drafted. It's not even close. I I have no idea what the other answer is. Maybe Cordero Patterson could be part of that answer. So I'm going to go ahead and get him a few places late. Obviously at this point, I wish I had taken him a lot more, but he was a player that you could look at at that point last year and be like, 
something could happen for Patterson, even if it's just, you know, three good weeks, that's mm-hmm. a lot to give me out of around 20 picks. So it, he's, you know, we always, at this time of year, people are like, who's going to be this year's Cordero Patterson. Who's going to be this year's Stefan Diggs?" And the easy answer is nobody, but they do give us somewhat of a blueprint of what we can look for. Usually, in finding that next Patterson, it's not finding the one guy that's going to do it because most likely that guy is not going to do it, but it is finding a a pool of guys and trying to mix in some of those players. So when you do get that one dude that smashes, you've got it on a roster and you do benefit from it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I I do wonder with like the year that Cordero had and the the year that like Debo had, how much of these like mixed sort of roles we're going to see going forward like you mentioned, you know, who's going to be like the next Cordero, like everybody's been talking all off season, who's going to be the next Debo. And yeah, probably nobody. But I mean, if we do find a wide receiver, who's going to get that mixed role, that could be extremely valuable. Um, And I don't know. I I just think, you know, it's like a copycat sort of league, right? So people see that out of Debo and they're going to want to find a way to do that on their own teams. And, you know, maybe we see this going forward and it, it definitely adds value to these players to be, you know, versatile. We sure wanted it to be LaVisca Chenault. And then the Jaguars oh were like, here's some money, Christian Kirk. Here's some money, Zay Jones. Here's some money, Evan Ingram. No, we still like LaVisca Chenault, I promise. Oh, God, pain. So much money lost on LaVisca. LaVisca Chenault is, might be more attractive now, though, than he was early in draft season because now nobody wants him, so you don't really have to risk a whole lot to take a shot on him. Yeah, he's a, he's dead cheap, and I, I mean, definitely a candidate to get traded. You know, he could go to a different situation and, and smash value for sure. Mm-hmm. Did this particular roster kind of fit in with the way you build in general, or was there anything different about it? So it's funny that you asked that. And it's funny that this was the team that won because honestly, like if I were doing a review and sometimes like on my podcast, I'll review teams or we'll review teams after a stream, I would have looked at this team and thought it was pretty not good, you know, not a good team to be honest with you. Like for example, you know, taking Mark Andrews and Noah Fant two tight ends in the first 10 rounds isn't something that I would advocate doing. It's not something that I would typically do. It came in really clutch because Noah Fant, you know, obviously produced in the most clutch part of the season when I needed him. But usually if I'm investing that heavily in a tight end, I'm not going to be taking another guy with a top 10 pick. I just think it weakens the overall upside of your team. It worked out really well, sort of as like a domino effect, because probably I'd be like taking an RB three or four in that spot. And instead, you know, I waited and waited and ended up with like the Singletary's and Daryl Henderson's. But, you know, that's just variance like that could have easily been, you know, bust picks. So typically, like I wouldn't do that. That wouldn't be in my my normal, you know, set strategy, I guess, in terms of roster construction. And, and same thing with quarterback where, you know, I ended up with Justin Herbert, who is, you know, going as a top eight quarterback. That's right on the fringe of whether or not I think it should be a two or three quarterback build. I think because I had the security with Mark Andrews um, at the other onesie position, I felt comfortable taking a third quarterback, which I had on this team. But, um, you know, typically I think I, I would be leaning to only take two quarterbacks if I invest a top eight pick in, you know, a potentially elite guy like Justin Herbert. So, you know, looking at this team, I, I wouldn't have like given it a 10 out of 10 by any stretch if I were, you know, rating it right after the draft. But, you know, um, just goes to show you really don't know until the season plays out. And I think I think variance means that we often tend to overrate how well we can judge a roster right after the draft happens. Mm-hmm. I know I always I, I always feel better when I get like a C minus from those Yahoo draft grades in an email than when it says A. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Sure. 
for what, sure, for sure. So what made you draft Noah Fant where you did, given that he was your second top 10? Is, was it just like he was a, a good – you felt like he was a good value where he was going. You didn't like anything else around him? It must have been. Um, see, unfortunately, like when I went back and looked at this team, I think there was like sort of an issue with drafters where like because playoff best ball had started, some of the ADPs are a little bit off. So I can't actually see exactly where I got him relative to some of the other players I picked. But I mean, just looking at the general roster and like my memory of the ADP, yeah, it looked like wide receiver was extremely dry at that point in the draft. So I, I probably just, you know, I'm looking at Noah Fant, thought the upside was there. I, I was big on Noah Fant last year. Didn't really pay off. But, um, you know, it did in the end, I guess. But, yeah, um, you know, I'm looking at the wide receivers that were available for me in that round. I'm looking at, like, Cole Beasley, Jacoby Myers. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely taking Noah Fant over over those type of guys at that point. Yeah, And, I mean, you know, you talk about variance, and obviously we all know there's lots of variance, and there is definitely good luck in Devin Singletary paying off when he did, Daryl Williams getting opportunity when he did. But we can look back on those picks at this point and make some sense of them. You know, you took Noah Fant probably because you didn't love what else was available at the other positions. And you're like, well, no offense, an upside player. So I'll go ahead and take that second tight end. And then later I don't have to take another one. And then in waiting to take those running backs, you found Devin Singletary and Daryl Williams. I'm assuming because at where they were going, they made a lot of sense for potential opportunity. Devin Singletary, you know, at that point, Zach Moss was the favorite, but obviously not a lock to lead that backfield. And then we saw how it went. Eventually, Daryl Williams was the backup to Clyde Edwards-Elair, who hasn't been a lock for anything but disappointment so far. So obviously, we will always rely on some variance and some luck. But I think a big key to these is setting yourself up to take advantage of that variance. And this, this to me, looks like a good example of where setting it up helped get you to this point. Absolutely. I mean, God, what's the expression? It's like luck favors those who are prepared or something like that. Like, you know, you have to definitely set yourself up to capitalize on those opportunities. And, you know, you you said it really well there. So, yeah, I agree with that. And I I like too the example of adjusting on the fly, because I, I that that's what I that's where I feel like I get one of my edges in a draft is you go in with some plan, especially um, if it's geared toward where you're drafting from. But when things go differently than you're expecting, you got to be ready to do something different because if you just follow the trends of that draft, you're just going to be drafting another team in that league instead of one that's doing something different to give you an edge to win it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that a certain amount of that is just going to come from, you know, experience and how many drafts you've done and how long you've been playing best ball. It's definitely different than I think any other format of fantasy football, a lot of people who I've talked to, you know, like outside of the space, you know, you try and explain it to them. And it's it's just a really hard concept, I think, for casual, you know, like redraft specific players to get like, obviously, that it's a growing niche and, you know, people like us who create content and, you know, we're gambling on it and, and drafting in March and April. But like, it's, it's still a really hard concept for some people to grasp, I, I think. Now, you mentioned that you spend all the regular season focused on DFS. How much mm-hmm. do those two interplay? Your experience with best ball, your experience with DFS, how much do you bring from one to the other? And, you know, I guess tell me which way it has gone for you. I mean, I think that they are extremely similar. Um, I, I think that they're a lot closer together in terms of the game that they are at their core than like best ball is to redraft, for example. I mean, it may seem counterintuitive since, you know, redraft, you're drafting a team and you're drafting a team in best ball versus like building around a salary cap. But I really do think that specifically with tournaments, and I guess I should say that I only play best ball tournaments. I don't play any cash, but 
when you look at it from that lens, I think that DFS and best ball are extremely, extremely similar. And the things that you're going to have to have a solid understanding of translate to both, you know, in terms of contest selection, you know, how different do I have to be in this contest? How much upside do I have to build? How many people do I have to beat? That's not really something you're asking yourself in redraft or dynasty because you're playing weekly matchups against one person, not massive fields, um, you know, stacks and correlation doesn't matter as much in, you know, a redraft league, you know, your fan, your friends and family league doesn't matter. Definitely matters in DFS as has been proven over the past couple of years and matters a ton. I think in best ball too, you want correlated rosters. You want to stack your rosters. Um, and then roster construction, just having a very solid fundamental understanding of what positions to draft, where, you know, what position limits you want to have. And that, that goes into DFS as well, in terms of like how much of your salary you want to spend, you know, how much upside are you getting by punting it off at quarterback, for example, on DraftKings versus punting it off in a best ball draft. So yeah, I think that they're very, very similar. And, you know, the better at DFS I got, I think the better at best ball I got as well and sort of vice versa. I feel like playing more um, best ball tournaments has made me understand the difference between DFS and, you know, full season fantasy football more because I, I, you know, I've played DFS, not especially good at it, if I'm being honest, but I think it's because I've spent so long playing full season fantasy football and it's really a different game. And I, I can see a bit more of that, especially as I do more of the tournament. And I'm glad that you made that uh, differentiation too, because certainly if you're drafting in just a 12 team best ball league, it's a lot more similar to full season. There's still some stuff yep. that carries over in between, especially player stacking. But you know, there there are there it emulates more the the fantasy product that most of us started out with than the full season tournament. Right, absolutely, and I mean, like that's what best ball started as too, right? Like if you go all the way back to like the MFL ten days, right? So like. I guess the difference is, is that now there it's so much more like alluring to join these tournaments with the big prize pools and it just feels more worth it. Like, you know, you're going to put your $10 aside for four months to win like 18. Like that's, that's not really enticing to me. I don't think. Um, but yeah, to I'm willing to put a couple hundred or, you know, a thousand or whatever away and then maybe come back with 10. Like that sounds, that sounds fine with me, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's definitely a thing, but then like you think about contest selection from like, a a zoomed out perspective, like it may seem like it's the same thing. 12 person draft, 12 person draft, you know, DraftKings, I'm entering a tournament, I'm building a cash game lineup. Like it's the same format, but the goal is entirely different. And if you don't, you know, have a nuanced understanding, you're going to just end up burning money by, you know, building things in an incorrect way, I think. Mm -hmm. So what are like a couple, let's say somebody is just trying to jump into this and, you know, you can, you can say whether it's a mistake to jump right into um, best ball tournaments, but let's say somebody just wants to go from playing regular full season lineup setting fantasy to, you know, some entries into a best ball tournament format. What are the, the basics that they have to have in mind for playing what is really a different format than they're used to? I think that I would want to, I mean, first off, I would say just do it because it's going to take a little while for you to get, to get the grasp and sort of just understand the way that these drafts flow. Cause they are definitely different than redraft leagues, you know, in a redraft league, like you're going to take your quarterback one, and then you might not even take another quarterback, you know, or you might wait until the last round. You really can't do that in these drafts. So like, it's just going to take a minute to acclimate yourself, I think. And the best way, you know, for me to do it, and I know everybody's different, you know, a lot of people probably don't want to invest as heavily as, as I do, or as some other people do, but like, you just got to get in there and do it and get a good feel. You know, I think that the most important 
parts of best ball or understanding roster construction, which, you know, takes research, but you know, there's so many amazing resources out there these days, like the guys at underdog and the analysis they do, you know, Hayden Winks, you mentioned earlier, like they, they've done so much good analysis. And, you know, I think that if you just take the time to like read some of that stuff about, you know, roster construction, you can instantly have a, you know, sort of an edge on the field because I mean, even now, right. I I wasn't sure if I wanted to start drafting this early. I'm like, God, it's probably just going to be like only super sharps who aren't going to be making any mistakes. Like, is there really any edge whatsoever? And I still am noticing, you know, two to three teams that I would call dead teams at the end of every draft, just because they're making basic roster construction mistakes. And if you can nail that part of your game down, it really will, I think, boost your overall expectation over the long term. And, and you know, it's just not something that everybody is doing or seems to have a solid grasp on, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Even among – and I, I do think that it is a sharper field drafting in March yeah. than you're going to find in August. But, you know, even there, you'll find things like – ADP influencing player draft position more than it really should. Like Debo Samuel is just the most glaring example to me in that the initial player rankings coming off the season have him at the end of round one. And he's just stayed there as opposed to people being like, that's not really as, as high as his projections would land him. He just stays there because in every draft, even if he slips a little bit, somebody's gonna be like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and get my Debo here and not let him fall that different. So, you know, I wouldn't be too scared off. And especially because we're in the time of year where we're all just making some level of educated guesses on, you know, what will or won't change with free agency, the NFL draft. So, you know, it's not a great time to jump in if you're just going to draft five teams all year, but if you're looking to, you know, make some decent entries that there are definitely advantages to going ahead and jumping in now. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think the earlier you get started, like the better of a feel you'll have for value over the course of the entire off season. And, you know, like, so if, if I'm not in right now and I just jump in in June, like I won't have understood the, you know, you know, the fluctuation of player values and, you know, best ball calendar is like pretty much down to a science at this point. There's like three major ADP shifts. The first, like right when these tournaments open, it's so heavily based on what happened last year, you know, just basically plug and you know, here's how everybody finished. That's how they're going to be drafted with a few exceptions. Um, and then it shifts at free agency, free uh, shifts post-draft, and then shifts like majorly, you know, around like June, July, when all the news starts coming out and, you know, we're in training camp, et cetera. But, you know, the, the more of those phases that you are actively drafting in, I just think the better of a feel you'll have overall. And that'll translate to the way that, you know, people are being valued in DFS at the beginning of the year too, which I think is also important. Mm-hmm. It can also help you diversify your player uh, exposure. Because, I mean, it, rather than consciously trying to take different players every draft, if you're drafting in different phases of the year, DK Metcalf was a second round pick every single draft early in draft season. And it's funny that we've reached the point where April 8th is not early in draft season anymore, but DK Metcalf's already at like the three, four turn now. So mm-hmm. I wasn't interested at that point. I think he's more attractive right now than he was then without Russell Wilson as quarterback, just because, you know, he's a round and a half, two rounds later in these drafts. And there, you know, you can find other examples. He's one that sticks out to me, but there are guys that you, if you're drafting across this whole span, you can not like a guy at one price, like him at another, or take him early and then be out when he gets out of range. In the earliest days of drafting, you would start liking a player and then he would get pushed up ADP because everybody would like him. And I'm like, I don't want to be out on him. So I got to take him now that we're in real drafts and not just doing mock drafts. 
Now you can take that guy early and smile later when people are taking him four rounds earlier than you did. Absolutely. And you, and you can hammer him, you know, like I, I could have like 20% of this guy, 25% of this guy, and then, you know, still wean myself off and have a great amount of exposure to him at a better price tag than the field. So, you know, absolutely. or you can take a bunch of Chris Carson and then cry when Seattle brings <laughs> Rashad Penny back anyway. Oh, oh my God. I know. Right? <laughs> so we talked about um, roster construction. How has your primary roster build differed or been the same year to year? Do you find that you tend to get, you know, the same numbers by position, uh, target positions in the same level of drafts year over year? Is that something that has evolved? It's definitely evolved. And I think that that just comes with the expansion of the format. Like, you know, a couple of years ago, we weren't playing in these massive tournaments and especially we weren't playing in them in April. Like, you know, um, so I think that it has become a little bit more formulaic now because there have been a couple of years of data to show you like where the optimal picks are, you know, what is the best position to take in this round. But of course those things can change. So it's not like a hard and fast rule necessarily, but I do think it's a good, you know, fundamental thing to have a good understanding of, to go back to, you know, like one thing that I always say um, is like, when in doubt, just take a wide receiver because the data will show you that it's the best pick of pretty much every round in the draft. Um, you know, highest ceiling, you need the most of them. So if I'm, I'm in a, like a really tough decision, like, God, do I go with, you know, this player, this player, one's a wide receiver, one's a running back. I'll just take the wide receiver. Maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't, but I know it was like a sound decision, you know, just from a, you know, a process standpoint, I will say that last year I focused on this a lot more heavily. I drafted by far the most teams I've ever drafted last year. And I've been like progressing year by year, like a couple years ago, I was doing, you know, maybe like a hundred last year, I was up to five or 600 this year. It'll probably be quite a bit more. I'm planning to max multiple uh, tournaments this year. But um, I think that understanding roster construction gets more important the more teams you have, because it, it's such a glaring thing that can either, you know, build the expectation of your team to be better or just be a massive leak in your game. What's your primary build for this one quarterback format, uh, full PPR, that is the kind of the primary drafters format? Mm -hmm. I think that the way I look at it is that A, on drafters, you need to have upside built into every single position because you're literally trying to finish with the most points out of 10,000 people. So you can't have, you know, bad weeks really. Uh, and you can't have weeks where your upside is capped. So I, I think it depends on where you take your first quarterback or where you take your first tight end. And I look at those two um, positions in conjunction, you know, the two onesie positions, you're only starting one typically uh, from each of those positions. I like to have five players between them. So if I take a quarterback early, I will probably be waiting and taking three tight ends, take a second quarterback sometime in the mid range and vice versa. You know, if I take tight end early, I'll be taking three quarterbacks and I'll most likely be waiting later. Sometimes I get a little weird, like, you know, if the position or if the, if the situation presents itself, like to grab Mahomes and Kelsey. So those are two top four picks designated to each of those positions. That's going to be an alternate build where I'm only going to have two quarterbacks and two tight ends, but that's not something that I would, you know, necessarily advocate or definitely not advocate at like a frequent range. Cause you're definitely capping your upside at running back and receiver. Do that. How attentive are you to, spreading out your player exposures draft by draft is that something that you track as you go or is it more a matter of feel and just taking a grand view at, at certain points during the draft season 
Yeah, I definitely don't do it draft by draft, but it is something to be cognizant of. As I mentioned, like last year, I drafted by far the most teams I ever had. And, you know, this was like a lesson I learned the hard way last year by having 25% Cam Akers when he went out, um, you know, by having 20% ETN. And I mean, I thought I was just dead in the water last year, um, you know, coming into the season because I, I just I ran pretty poorly with injury luck coming into the year, I felt. And you know, maybe those exposures were a little high, maybe specifically Cam Akers, like having a 25% exposure to a player in the first two rounds isn't, you know, something that I think is necessarily good. I think that it's a sliding scale. You know, you want to have balanced exposure with the early round picks because most of the time your first, you know, two, your first round picks, your second round picks, they're not going to be what wins you the, you know, the league. It's going to be your later round picks. It's going to be the mid rounds where you find that breakout player. And I feel more comfortable being, heavy on those guys because the risk reward proposition is significantly different. Um, there's a much higher ceiling on hitting on those picks, I think. So I'm willing to be heavy on certain players, you know, relative to like what the traditional rules are of like player exposure. But um, yeah, I think it's definitely important to be cognizant if you're mass drafting teams, if you're only going to throw like 10 entries in, then I mean, who cares, you know, go, go after your guys have fun. But like, if you are looking at this as like not, you know, here's my teams. I'm looking at this as here's my portfolio of player exposures. I, I don't see how you couldn't be cognizant of it. Right. Yeah. I think that's important too, to consider the different levels of players here. If you're, you know, max or high volume drafting, then you've got to pay attention because we're all going to get some things wrong. As you mentioned with Cam Akers and Travis Etienne, guys are going to get hurt. You mm -hmm. could be absolutely right on the player, but if he tears his ACL, then you're suddenly wrong on him and it's going to mm -hmm. drag you down. And I like that you highlighted the difference between a second round pick and somebody later in the draft. We always see, you know, all summer we start getting the Twitter question, who's the one guy you can't leave your draft without? And people always want to mention players in round four, round five. Like if a player in the first third of your draft is the guy that you're thinking of as the can't leave my draft without, then I think that you're thinking about that question wrong. For me, it's always a player that's like round 12 plus because mm -hmm. that's where you find guys that either are, I think, drastically undervalued or have the path to smash the position at where you're investing in them. So whenever I check my exposures, those are the guys that are leading, the guys in, mm -hmm. you know, well into the double digit rounds. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's a lot easier to to get those guys because like you know, in the first two rounds, a lot of it's just going to be dictated by the randomized draft position, you know, unless you're just going crazy and like reaching on players left and right. But like, you know, it's not def it's definitely not the case with the later round guys. Like I could take a guy with a 16th round ADP in round 15 or round 17, and it's really not going to make a huge difference. But it, it's a lot easier to get those guys that are that are your guys. And you're not just going to torpedo your entire roster if they go down because, you know, the, the price is so much cheaper. How much of a plan do you take into a given draft, you know, a single draft among the five or 600 or more that you're going to do this year? And is it like, okay, I'm picking 10th in this one. Here is most likely how I'm going to start. It's definitely that. I mean, I wouldn't say that I go in with a plan. I, I would say that, you know, I go in just with an understanding of how drafts will play out from any given position, just because, you know, through volume, you get a feel for that. So you know, like, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I opened the draft and I've got the 101. Yeah, I'm planning on taking Jonathan Taylor, but that's just like, you know, a, you know, a function of, you know, balancing out exposures and doing what you got to do. Um, 
to get those guys. So yeah, I really don't. The only plan I have is to build sound rosters through roster construction. And yeah, I, I definitely don't want to go into things with a plan. I think, you know, fluidity is extremely important and, you know, you sometimes you'll are right, So like, I want to take a wide receiver in round four or five, but this player fell and okay, maybe it's going to be my RB three, which I would never usually take, but I can't pass the value up. I was in a draft last night where, I mean, it wasn't me, but somebody got Alvin Kamara like in the mid third round, which is absolutely insane. You know, I haven't seen that through any of these drafts yet. I mean, I would have taken him there, even if it was my third running back, despite that being something I would tend to never do, but you have to be fluid and, and make adjustments on the fly based on the, the way the board falls, I guess. Yeah, Alvin Kamara has specifically been a guy that you that that will fall. I mean, he's his ADP is in round three, I believe, of FFPC drafts. I think it's right at the two three turn on underdogs. So he's certainly a guy that's been scoopable so far. I, I like that because I don't like to go into a draft with a specific plan either and make sure that I'm fluid throughout the draft. Um, how much do you look at the other drafters rosters around you in a tournament draft? Well, I would say probably not that much in slow drafts. I think that you can a little bit more because, you know, I mean, you only have like 30 seconds in these fast drafts, right? So it's like, I'm more focused on myself at that point and making the right decisions and the right correlations. I'm not really focused on what anybody else is doing, but like if I'm in a slow draft, right. And I'm at the turn or I'm close to one of the turns and I'm deciding between like a wide receiver and a quarterback, I'll definitely look and be like, oh, this guy doesn't have, you know, neither of these guys have a quarterback. All right, I'm going to take my quarterback and, you know, vice versa. Like, all right, maybe I'm like deciding between Jalen Hurts and a wide receiver. These guys both took quarterback early. I feel comfortable in, in waiting, taking my receiver, and then, you know, hoping that they don't double down on quarterback early. So definitely a, a something I do more in slow drafts just because it's, it, you know, it's easier. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I like hearing that because that's the way that I do it. And I, it's not really a question that I thought of with other guests on here. But, you know, I was kind of curious if other people are watching the other teams throughout their draft in slow drafts, of course. I mean, if you're if you have 30 second clocks and you're watching all of the boards, then I, I guess yeah. that you're you're the kind of person who does a Rubik's Cube in a minute. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, to me, especially when we're talking about tournaments where you're not really drafting against this group of 12, but against the entire field, mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things that you can shift your focus away from, except for when it can affect your specific pick. You know, like you said, when you get close to a turn, taking a, a look at, at the teams between you and your next pick and seeing what the likelihood is that, you know, this tight end or this quarterback will get through that turn and back to you, um, stuff like that. So yeah, that's, that's about the way that I'm paying attention to it too. I wanted to bring you on to talk about drafters because I, I like the format there primarily. I, I mean, you know, first of all, it's full PPR as opposed to half PPR on underdog. So I think it's what is predominantly being played as the main format at this point. So it's easier to translate kind of all the things I'm doing into the drafters format. But I also like that it's full season points. It doesn't have the one and done weeks at the end of the year, like underdog, like FFPC, like some others. Um, that turn it into a tournament at that point, you know, from like NCAA tournament format. I like rewarding the team that has been the best team for the season rather than a really good team that had Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase uh, in, you know, week 16. Does that steer your decision on tournaments to load up on at all? Or are you just kind of adjusting to the format at this point? Yeah, I mean, I, th I definitely think they're important. Like, so for example, one thing that I did last year in underdog that doesn't apply at all to drafters was look at the 
the playoff week schedules. And obviously, you know, pre, you know, pre the NFL season, it's really hard to make, you know, solid judgments on that. But like one thing that comes to mind is, is I remember like the Bengals playing, they play like the Chargers and the Chiefs or something like, yeah, they played the Chiefs in week 17. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the kind of thing I was looking at with underdogs specifically that doesn't really matter on drafters because mm-hmm. that week 17 isn't actually weighted any more than any other week. Like, yeah, it probably like seems like it if you're like me and you're sweating it, but literally it does have the same impact on your final score as, you know, week 12 or week five, like it's all the same. So that is definitely not the case on underdog where all the money is won in those. So you definitely do have to do a deeper level of digging on like the schedule. And, you know, even like going back to what we were talking about earlier with like the correlation between DFS, you know, that's another level of correlation that is underdog specific where, okay, so I've got my chief stack and maybe I'm deciding between a Bengals player and a player from team X. Well, I know that the chiefs play the Bengals in that week. So like, I'm going to be more likely to select that Bengals player because, you know, if Mahomes is going off and he's having that week winning week in week 17, there's a good chance that the, you know, player X on the team coming back is also having a big week. And, you know, that's sort of the thing that you learn in DFS. And I think is definitely applicable to that specific format. Drafters, though, I mean, you just got to target upside. Mm-hmm. I do think stacking is very important on drafters, but it's definitely less important. Like, I will take a high end quarterback, like, I'll take Josh Allen without Steph Diggs, I probably wouldn't do that on underdog, but you know, Josh Allen clearly has QB one overall ceiling and you might need that, you know, you, you really might. So yeah, I don't know. I think I, I got off track a little bit there. <laughs> no, we're also, we're, we're all about, you know, getting off track, going on to another track. We're all <laughs> heading toward the same place. Ultimately we're trying to win some fantasy football leagues here, yeah. but yeah, I agree. Stacking still matters. You still want to stack, but it's less like I need to stack right. when you're talking about a full season format versus those individual weeks at the end. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, reducing the amount of things you have to get right, or at at least things that make sense to happen in conjunction. Like, yes, if Justin Herbert has a monster year this year, makes sense that, you know, probably Keenan or Mike Williams or both are going to have a big year too. So yeah, like, why not, you know, put them both on the same roster, you get one thing right, you're probably getting both things right. So do you have any kind of limits on stacking to your like, Oh, I already have, I have Justin Herbert and Keenan Allen and Mike Williams. I don't need Gerald Everett. Or is it like, Hey, if, if you get to a point where you're a value, then I'm going to take all the guys from this team and then I'll get all the big weeks. I mean, if it comes to like an extreme point of value, then definitely. I also think that you have to like consider team specific situations. Like, so for example, like a player, like, Jalen Hurts or Trey Lance, I would have limits on the amount of stacking that I'm going to do because so much of their upside, I think, comes from rushing. You know, so I don't think that they're going to be putting up a ton of weeks where multiple pass catchers are going off. You know, Josh Allen, I'll draft seven Bills because they will throw the ball 45 times in a given week. You know, they can do that week in and week out, elevate multiple pass catchers. Same thing with like Joe Burrow or just any of these pass happy teams. Mm Definitely. Yeah. I mean, if I'm taking Jalen Hurts, it's probably a single stack, maybe a double stack if, you know, the the value is there, but it definitely depends on, you know, how pass happy the team is expected to be and and that sort of thing. Yeah, At this point, I'm not taking Joe Burrow anywhere unless I already have Jamar Chase on yep. that team, just kind of round out the stacking point. 
I know he's he's so expensive right now. It's crazy. <laughs> it really is. That's really going ahead of like Joe, like Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray in some drafts. I can't he, can't believe it. He began draft season as QB three. He has at least come down from there. Even this price seems expensive, but it, if people have at least gotten a little bit more realistic, it's still like I'm I'm literally if I don't have Jamar Chase on my team already, I'm not taking Joe Burrow and probably not even taking Joe Burrow at all outside of underdog. Where I, I think. The, that's really the only advantage is having him and one of those top two receivers in a format where you need those huge weeks at the end of the year. Yep. Couldn't agree more. So let's use that to transition into some specific players. Cause obviously no matter what you do, you still need your players to go off. So we want to target yep. some guys or avoid some guys that will help us win here. Who have been some of your favorite players to target? And we can just go by position starting with quarterback. All right, let's see here. All right. So quarterback, I have been prioritizing the upside of the top guys because I think that the quarterback pool dies off extremely quickly this year. And also, unlike in some years past, I pretty much am tending to agree right now with the way that ADP and like my personal rankings are like aligned. So, you know, I'm not seeing like great values at the end of the draft at quarterback. I think that, you know, the ceilings on those guys are extremely limited. So I do want to be targeting the early quarterbacks. I have a lot of Lamar Jackson right now. Like we kind of mentioned, you know, Joe Burrow's going ahead of him, or at least they're going like right next to each other. So I, I like the value of Lamar Jackson in the fifth round. I've been taking a ton of him. You know, I think he still has QB one overall upside for sure with what he does as a rusher. And, you know, just that rushing upside is the kind of thing I target. So like, you know, with guys like, I mean, Aaron Rodgers, Matt Stafford, et cetera, going ahead of like Jalen Hurts, it uh, doesn't make too much sense to me. I'm going to be taking Jalen Hurts. So I'm always going to be overweight on those types of players. Lamar, you know, Jalen Hurts. I have a decent amount of Justin Herbert right now as well. But um, yeah, Trey Lance is a guy I'm kind of bullish on. Justin Fields, like guys with rushing upside. That's That's my primary target. Yeah, we talk about how you can't get rushing quarterbacks at a bargain anymore because people are onto it, but it turns out you can. And they've they, Trey Lance has fallen since the beginning of draft season for whatever yeah. reason, and he's lower on drafters. That's something I, I highlighted a little while back on Twitter. Derek Carr, Kirk Cousins are ahead of Trey Lance and Justin Fields in ADP on drafters. To me, that's probably an over-reliance on stacking Derek Carr with Devontae Adams and Kirk Cousins with Justin Jefferson. Because mm -hmm. if you're weighing upside between those guys, either on a week-to-week -week or full-season basis, I don't think it's anywhere close. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm like I'm just looking right now, like Derek Carr, Kirk Cousins going ahead of Trey Lance and, and Justin Fields. Like, I don't know. That <laughs> couldn't be me. I'm sorry. Yeah. And it, so I, I like the early quarterback too. It, it, that's been a funny evolution because, you know, I think okay. most people who would target one of those quarterbacks now have at some point been in the wait on a quarterback camp. And, it, you know, some of it's evolution of the kind of quarterback that's creating fantasy points in the NFL right now. But the part of it that relates to building that best ball roster is if you get one of those early quarterbacks, in addition to having that high ceiling, it really opens up what you can do from that point on. At quarterback you don't have to get a second quarterback at any specific range you can even wait and take two very late ones to try to fill that in whereas if you're waiting until round 10 to take your first you really have to get that next one within that next couple rounds you yeah absolutely and i i mean just like the upside i feel like is so capped after you know that qb like 15 16 range like once you get down to like mac jones matt ryan zach wilson etc it's just I, I just don't know if you're ever getting 
big spike weeks out of those guys. So even on rosters where like I have a Josh Allen or, or a Justin Herbert or, or whomever, I still think that I'm trying to get my quarterback to before that tier, you know, like the, where the tier ends of like fields to a uh, Trey Lance guys that at least have the upside to still make it into your roster, you know, more times than just Josh Allen's bye week, you know? Yeah. It's basically the two align since they got Tyreek Hill, either before the, or after the two align. The two align. I like that. Yeah. So who are you targeting at running back so far? All right, I'll give you a deep sleeper at running back. This is a guy that I've been taking a lot lately. I, I haven't quite checked my exposure in the past couple of days, but I would imagine he's like right towards the top because he's like a 19th, 20th round pick and you can get him in every draft if you want him. And that's uh, Dearness Johnson, which is, you know, a little bit out there. It's a little bit, uh, you know, the dart throw, but, you know, all right. Situation is he's the current RB3 in Cleveland, right? And there are a few reasons I like him. And the main one is that there's multiple outs to success. Obviously he has, you know, the upside of any of these late round running backs where if the guys in front of him go down, he could, you know, elevate and get a bigger role. But also we have the cream hunt trade rumors. I think that that's still in play. Cream hunt could definitely get moved by this team. They've, you know, been taking calls on him. Uh, We've been hearing that for months and not only that, but neither cream hunt nor Nick Chubb get a massive boost in workload when the other one goes out. So Dearness Johnson isn't just a hedge on, you know, one player getting hurt. He's a hedge on two players getting hurt, two players who have both missed games over the last two years. And, you know, Nick Chubb goes down. I think Dearness sort of, you know, slides into having a pretty decent role. Cream Hunt goes down or gets traded. I think he slides into having a pretty decent role. And he has pass catching upside. He had three games last year with 20 plus touches. He has been productive for the Browns. I don't know. I like him. Plus, I mean, there's also that, you know, shadow looming of maybe this Browns offense is absolutely a juggernaut if if Deshaun Watson plays a decent amount of games. So I, I don't know, man. I, I love Dearness Johnson. He's like the perfect RB5 type that I'm targeting at the end of my drafts, you know, i.e. Daryl Williams last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can certainly see the upside path. It's easy at this point in the year after we get past that first run of free agency and some trades, especially with the way the trade market went this year to say, well, I guess the Browns are keeping Kareem Hunt, but it's April 8th. I mean, no team has lost a running back to a season ending injury yet. So there's lots of time for a trade to potentially happen there. So yeah, I agree with the upside. And if you say he's crazy, how does anybody say I love Dearness Johnson? Well, you know, nobody actually loves him. That's why he's a 20th round pick. So Ben loves right. him as a 20th round pick. He doesn't love Dearness Johnson uh, you know, unconditionally. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how interesting would it be if I, if I said how much I love Jonathan Taylor, like, come on. <laughs> right. I'm not leaving any draft without Jonathan Taylor. <laughs> um, wide receiver, any targets so far? Yeah, I will say uh, a guy that I have been drafting an absolute ton of, and that is Mike Williams. Um, I I mean, first of all, I just want to say I'm all in on the chargers this year. I'm literally drafting every charger at ADP or slightly above like Austin Eckler is my running back two right now. And so, you know, with him going around pick six or seven on a full PPR site, I'm going to be super high on Mike uh, or on Austin Eckler, I should say, but with Mike Williams specifically, his ADP on drafters is 48. So he's going, you know, four or five turns. Sometimes you can get him mid fifth if he falls a little bit. And I just think that within the range of outcomes of Mike Williams' season this year, we could definitely see him flip Keenan Allen to being Justin Herbert's primary alpha wide receiver one. You know, we saw it at a point at the beginning of last year when Mike Williams started off the first five games with, you know, four of those games having 22 plus points, two out of those four, you know, 30 plus. He's obviously a big play threat, but if he gets utilized and targeted, you know, sort of in that mass target role that Keenan Allen has been in, I I think the upside is massive. 
at worst, Mike Williams is going to have a couple big touchdown weeks that, you know, find your, find his way into your lineup regardless. And at best you're smashing value on a guy who's going to be, you know, regarded as like a top two round pick next year because he's Justin Herbert's wide receiver one. So yeah, I'm all over Mike Williams. I'm all over the chargers this year. I've already bet futures for them across multiple sports books. Like let's go LA this year. Yeah, I bet them to the Super Bowl right after the Super Bowl ended. So I've been happy to see how their offseason has gone. And oh, the yeah. range of outcomes on Mike Williams, I think, is important because you can look at his ADP and it's even been climbing on underdog. I think he's inside the top 16 at this point at wide receiver. Wow. So that's, I think, getting a little bit high. But again, if we're talking about best ball tournaments here, which obviously we are, He's at worst, a healthy Mike Williams is going to give you some spike weeks. So mm-hmm. if you just get some spike weeks and that's all, and that's letting you down, you're going to be okay with them. Um, and at wide receiver 21 on drafters, I'm certainly a buyer more than uh, thinking that he's overvalued at that level. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would also say that like, that makes sense that he would be higher on underdog because mm-hmm. like his highest rank, you know, like the top of his ceiling is going to come from touchdowns and, you know, on drafters, you could definitely make the case that like some of these other guys are going to have a lot more receptions. You know, he's going around like Elijah Moore, Amon Ross St. Brown, et cetera. Like, yeah, those guys have an elevated amount of value on drafters. Whereas like, I don't think that their upsides are nearly as comparable as they are or as they would be on underdog. So yeah, that makes sense to me that he would have a higher ADP on, on UD. I think it's interesting too, to, to look at, and you never really know, but it seems like from the way people draft on these two sites in particular, that there are some that don't really take the difference in scoring into account probably enough. I mean, the, with the way that wide receivers are drafted on underdog and actually the way that running backs are going on drafters, running backs collectively are going a little bit earlier that higher range of running backs on drafters than they are on underdog and wide receivers are going earlier on underdog when really it should be the opposite. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. And and that just like goes back to like sort of what we talked about with like the correlation between DFS and best ball. I mean, contest selection and understanding the rules of the contest you're in is just so massive. And, and I, I mean, you would think that people, especially at this point in the year who are drafting have a decent understanding, but I don't know. Some questionable things going out there in these drafts. So, yeah. And, and, you know, just be aware of the different draft environments. Like if you're drafting on underdog and you're like, I really like the early running backs because people are leaving me Saquon Barkley in round three, then you go over to drafters and it's like, well, running backs are going a little earlier. That's where you go ahead and take those early round wide receivers, especially because it's full PPR. And if you're getting somebody that's getting, you know, 10 targets a week over there, you can fill that in a lot more easily with later round picks at other positions. Mm -hmm. Yep. So tight end, who are your targets so far? Tight end is such a crapshoot year in and year out that, I mean, so much of tight end production comes from touchdowns, right? Mm -hmm. Not many of these guys are going to be racking up a lot of points via, you know, high target totals and receptions, et cetera. So my tight ends are almost always going to be correlated with my quarterbacks when I can get it because, you know, I, I just want, you know, my quarterback, if they're throwing a touchdown, my tight end has a chance of catching it. You know, my tight ends having a good week, it's probably coming with an additional passing touchdown from the quarterback. So, I mean, that's obviously not always possible, you know, with the higher end guys, like, you know, it's hard to correlate Lamar Jackson and Mark Andrews or Mahomes and Kelsey, et cetera, but it's not hard to, you know, add Gerald Everett, to a Justin Herbert stack, you know, it's not hard to grab Dallas Goddard and Jalen Hurts at, at, you know, the eight, nine turn or whatever it is, nine, 10 turn. So, you know, those are the kind of things I do. Um, 
still pretty early for me to know exactly who I'm going to be the highest on. I guess I've been targeting Goddard a lot because I'm so high on Jalen Hurts. So that's one guy that I think has, you know, the upside just from like an athletic profile and target opportunity standpoint to finish higher than where he's going. I mean, he's still being drafted as like what the tight end seven or eight. So maybe not a ton of upside, but would I be shocked if he had a better season than like TJ Hawkinson or Dalton Schultz? Definitely not. And then other than that, I just target tight ends late that are on offenses with a lot of potential touchdowns that can be scored. So, I mean, maybe the target projection doesn't look good, but OJ Howard in the 20th round on the bills. Sure. He could luck box his way into five touchdowns, you know, Gerald Everett late. Absolutely. Albert O late with Noah Fant gone and, and Russell Wilson coming to town. Absolutely. So a lot of it is going to just be, you know, targeting correlations with my quarterbacks and then, you know, targeting guys on high powered offenses that I think can, you know, produce a lot of touchdowns. Yeah, same for me. It's been easily the most variable position that can depend on how that draft is going, how the team build is going. Cole Komet has stood out to me, a tight end 18, and especially with the value on Justin Fields that we talked about earlier. It's easy. It's even easier to get those two than it is to get Jalen Hurts and Dallas Goddard in the middle of drafts. You know, you got Justin Fields as your second quarterback a lot of times. You can take Cole Komet as either a very late first tight end or a second tight end. And frankly, if I have, you know, like Dallas Goddard and Cole Komet, I'm okay with not having a third tight end in this format at all. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that for sure. Who among all the positions, any players that fit into your zero shares guy? I mean, you know, there will always be fades, but I'm assuming at the level you're playing a fade means that you're getting some of him mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, up at the same level as everybody else around him. Any guys that you're just not touching at all at their current price? All right. So for like transparency sake, I'm only about 55 to 70 drafts deep right now. So I, I mean, I don't know who I'm going to get exposure to over the Basically next a tad hundred. Ball, couple. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's how, <laughs> that's how I feel. But, um, you know, some guys that I can tell you for sure, I haven't taken any of yet this off season is a lot of these running backs at the top of the third round. Like I'm almost never going to be taking Saquon Barkley. I'm never going to be taking David Montgomery, Antonio Gibson. Like these are just not the profile of player that I'm interested in, especially when from an ADP sense, they're going around, you know, Mike Evans, T Higgins, Jalen Waddle, DeAndre Hopkins, Keenan Allen. Like I will just be spreading my exposure between like those five wide receivers, 10 out of 10 times, rather than trying to get Barkley or Demon or Gibson. You know, a lot of that goes back to like the RB dead zone that became a, a popular point of discussion last off season. But you just know that the wide receivers a have more upside b you need to roster more of them and c they're less likely to bust for you know poor projections or just injury concerns so i'm I'm fading these guys and specifically with like barkley demont and gibson those three guys they're all on you know very questionable offenses that could not be very productive from a fantasy perspective so it's just easier to you know target wide receivers on the bucks or the chargers or the Bengals. like it, it just makes all the sense in the world to be heavier on those guys than target these running backs. So, and just like in a general sense, I'm fading a lot of running backs in that running back dead zone, going back to, you know, that like JK Dobbins, Zeke Elliott in the fifth round, I I find myself going after wide receiver or, you know, elite quarterback in that spot, almost every draft. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I feel pretty comfortable in that. I'm definitely with you on Dobbins. I'm with you on Montgomery. I can see Gibson, especially after they re-signed J.D. McKissick. I'm a little surprised to hear Barkley being in the same bin as those Mm -hmm. guys. I agree. It's been a a crappy offense at this point. I think there's enough hope for upside in a new coaching staff coming there. But really, for me, it's about betting on Barkley at the same level where you're betting on guys like Antonio Gibson, David Montgomery, where 
if he is all the way back to being Saquon Barkley or even close to what he was at the beginning of his career. I mean, he's the kind of guy who could catch 70 passes and get 250 plus carries and produce even in a bad offense. So he, he's been a target player for me in that range. Really? Yeah. And I mean, I could definitely see that on drafters as well, where that catch upside could come in super clutch. Uh, if he does hit that top range of his outcome, he, he would definitely be the one of these guys that I'd be like the most lenient uh, to change my stance on just because of that. Like, I don't think that Antonio Gibson has that pass catching upside with McKissick there. I mean, they've clearly shown that they want to use McKissick in that way. Montgomery, I mean, he could, I'm just not bullish on the bears this year. We'll see. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty low on the giants, I think as a whole, but I mean, maybe, uh, the, the Dable addition could really shift things. So. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I, I'm not ready to bet on the giants, but I, what I like about Barkley is that you don't really have to bet on the giants. So, you know, again, if he's close to what he was at the beginning of his career, then his upside is with, into the top five at the position. And now you're taking that in round three. So it's like, uh, I'm taking a, a modest bet on Barkley um, in this range where I also feel like there are similar wide receivers going probably by my next turn where after I take Barkley. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. So Ben, I appreciate you talking through all this stuff on drafters with me. What can people look for you look for from you uh, in the coming weeks and months? Uh, coming weeks from uh, coming weeks and months, we're going to be doing a ton of streams over on our Twitter and YouTube channel for the podcast. You can find that at the DFS Dose on Twitter, the DFS Dose on YouTube as well. We do draft streams, um, you know, several times a week. We're really getting into the flow of doing that now multiple podcasts per week. So, I mean, if you want our thoughts, we pretty much grind best ball all off season and then transition directly into DFS at, you know, the end of August, beginning of September. So, you know, I think that we've got a pretty uh, sharp group over there and I would definitely encourage you guys to check it out. Uh, that's about it, man. We're just grinding, trying to provide good information and, you know, be very open about our process. I, I mean, I think it's a good one and, you know, we encourage people to join the conversation, you know, um, Obviously, this game is still relatively young. It's not solved. Um, I don't know how long it's going to be like a massive edge. Like we've seen, I don't know how much you've noticed, but like DFS has gotten so much harder, mm -hmm. right? I don't know how long we are until best ball gets to that point, but I don't think we're there yet. And I, I just want to capitalize what we still can. And, you know, even if it's already the kind of place where you don't want to dive into making 100 tournament entries, there are formats for everybody. So even if mm -hmm. you're a casual player, even if you're just doing single leagues, there, there's some out there for everybody. Even though we're talking tournaments here, there is absolutely nothing wrong with playing, you know, the cash type games in these best ball leagues and, and you know, trying to make some money in those um, those kinds of entries. For sure. I mean, I used to love doing that and uh, I, I, there's nothing wrong with it at all. It's fun. I mean, you know, it, why mock draft when you can put a couple bucks on it, right? Yeah. I, mean, I, I still, every time I think about it, I can't believe that it took us so long to figure out that all we had to do was have everybody throw in $5 in these mock drafts and all of a sudden they mattered a whole lot more <laughs> and they were much more interesting. And by the end of the season, you would get money that you didn't remember putting in in the first place, it's like when you find a $20 bill in the pocket of your coat, you're like, Oh yeah, I forgot I did that draft in yeah. June. Now I get a hundred. So sweet. I, why, why did it take us so long to do this, Ben? Right. Perfect. We got the hundred. Let's throw it into some more drafts immediately. Exactly. <laughs> we'll keep that pyramid building. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at Ben Hover. You can find his stuff at the dfsdose.com or on their YouTube channel. Ben, thanks very much for joining me on here today. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. 
whether you are grinding best ball drafts right now or focusing on your dynasty rookie draft or whatever else, head to DraftSharks.com, become a DS Insider. Our 2022 rankings are live. Jared and I just talked about them on the pod the other day. Our constantly improving draft war room is also live, ready to sync for your drafts. Our entire Dynasty Prospect Scouting Report series is totally free. So even if you're not ready to be a DS Insider just yet, you can come on over and check all those out. We've got more prospect profiles coming out pretty much every day up until the NFL draft. So check it out. For my guest, Ben Hover, and the entire Draft Sharks crew, I'm Matt Shouse saying thanks so much for swimming with us.